Well, friends, if you'll take your Bibles in hand and turn to 1 John and chapter 3. 1 John and chapter 3. We're continuing our study of 1 John. And I'm actually going to be stopping after this. Um, we'll have a kind of standalone sermon next week. Um, just don't want to get started into chapter 4 if we're not going to be able to work through that. So we'll look at that chapter 4 and chapter 5 hopefully sometime in the new year. Um, but I'll do a standalone sermon next week, hopefully, and then Justin will be back in the pulpit after that for a period of time. Today we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 through 24. Just to gain the entirety of the context, I'd like to read from verse 11 down through 24. 1 John chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Friends, it's with great joy and great privilege, great honor, that we then hear from our living God this morning. Starting in verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. And he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son of Jesus Christ, his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him, and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, the word of God says, And without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Friends, as you have heard from this pulpit without fail, week in and week out, truly by God's grace and mercy, we affirm the truth of God's Word. The truth that says you are saved by grace through faith. Friends, it is only by this faith that we indeed please the Holy God. For outside of Christ, we find ourselves in utter and complete despair dreading the day of Christ's return when the final judgments will come and all those who are not written in the book of life will be cast out into the lake of fire. Those not written in the book of life are those that are unsaved, that are not known by the Father, nor do they know Him. The reality of this coming judgment wherein all will stand before the perfect just and holy God is both awesome and truly terrifying. For the unbeliever, this should cause true dread, as I said, true despair, true fear, as they wait for that judgment. However, for the believer, they should find themselves at rest in Christ, knowing that in salvation they have inherited eternal life. They have nothing to fear but can truly, joyfully expect his return to be united with him in the new heaven and the new earth. However, for 
all of us, as I know I have, and I'm sure you have as well, we wrestle at times with moments of fear and doubt. We find that as Christians being progressively sanctified, we continue to battle against sin. We continue in sometimes disobedience to God's law and his command. We desire desperately, desire so desperately to be obedient to him. And yet we find ourselves failing to do so. It's like a knife to the heart at times for us because we work and strive to be obedient to him because we desire to walk in the ways in which our Savior walked, to walk in the light, as John has talked about, to obey the commands that God has given. And yet we just fail. And we think to ourselves, man, I could have done this differently. Or I could have done that differently. I could have used my time better. I shouldn't have said those things. I shouldn't have had those thoughts. I shouldn't have used those words. This sense of failing can and frequently does drive us to moments of true doubt. Where we look upon our current situation and we think, where am I? Am I saved or am I not? Our instant desire is to address these feelings in one of two ways. We either stuff it down and we say, I'm fine. I can just live how I want. It's fine. There's nothing to worry about. Or the other option is that we give in to the despair and we live in that despair and it drives us into deeper despair, deeper fear. Sometimes to the point where we say, why bother trying? Because I can never be good enough. Both of these are incorrect responses. They don't answer what we truly need. It doesn't answer the question, where do I stand before God? In our text today, John addresses that very thing. This need and this reason that we need assurance of salvation. Keeping in step with his ongoing contrast, he does something here while not quite mentioning doubt. He says, there is a difference between faith and doubt. There is a difference between having confidence before God, assurance before God, and not. And in so doing, as he helps the original audience and he helps us today, we find assurance not based on our own works, not based on our own abilities, but based on the power of God and his evident work within our lives. As I mentioned, the biblical view of salvation, that we are saved by grace through faith, we see today a biblical view of assurance that God's grace, when given to a man, will truly transform his nature and cause him to desire and see a life that continues to grow in obedience. Salvation is a permanent gift that will naturally lead the believer to a life that practices righteousness, as we've seen before, as he spoke about even earlier in this chapter, and one that truly walks in the light. In this, we find the ability to identify false conversion and to see the true faith that is found only in Christ Jesus, the second person of the Trinity. Draw, John will draw upon us to address our condemning hearts, to find true rest in God, to exercise obedience in Christ-centered faith, and to find our sonship in the presence of the indwelling Spirit. In these six verses, John takes all that he has challenged us with regards to true and false doctrine, true and false faith, true and false practices, and says, you can find confidence in the Lord, believer. You have tested and you've pushed out that which is false. That's what this whole letter has done so far. It's caused the 
reader, it's caused the original audience as it causes us to ask the question throughout, where do I stand? As John desired to address false teaching, it naturally means that we have to ask the question, well, do I follow false teaching or false doctrines or false practices? Remember, he's been setting the tone. There is truth and there is error. There's reality and there's falsehoods. He said it, there's light and there's darkness. There's those that confess sin and those that do not because they say they have no sin. There's those that obey the commands and those that do not. There's a, there are those that love the Lord and those that love the world. There are those that love their brother and there are those that hate their brother. And so we've been put to the test. And as we've tested, we've pushed out those things that are not of God. But then the question is, well, I fail sometimes. So how do I find true assurance and confidence in the Lord? And that's what we'll see today. And so with that, I'd like to stop an introduction and just get into the text to help us answer that very question. To help us in our navigation of these six verses, I have four points to put before you. First, in verses 19 and 20, we have confidence in God's grace. Second, in verses 21 and 22, we have confidence in God's will. In verse 23, we have confidence in God's salvation. And finally, in verse 24, we have confidence in God's Spirit. And so let us turn to this first point. We have confidence in God's grace. Reading again verses 19 and 20. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our hearts, and he knows everything. By this, he starts. What does that mean, by this? By what shall we know that we are of the truth? He's pointing back to verses 16 through 18 that talk about brotherly love. Starting in verse 16, he says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, laying down his life upon a cross for the believer, for those that have been called. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And so how do we know that we are in the truth? He says, by our love for one another. The reality is, is that none of that kind of love, this truly sacrificial love, is done out of our own desire. <coughs> Friends, we are born with sin. We see it in our children, right? I have two little ones. Beautiful as they are, you see their selfish natures. They see their desire for their own self-interest. They can be sweet at times, and they can share, and they can offer things. But there's always that one time where they say, my will is better than yours. My desires are greater than your desires. Even in my one-year-old who can't speak, he does this nice grunt of anger whenever something doesn't go his way. And so he says, how do you know that you are in the truth? The self-sacrificial love for one another. That word, we shall know, it's to learn, to find out, to realize a reality, a change that's happened. That we're of the truth. And what is that truth, right? The truth of God's word. Remember John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. What is that truth? Your word is truth. How do we know that we are of the word? How do we know that we are of the truth? That we are saved? It's, once again, by this love. And so we find assurance of our salvation, assurance of our faith, based on our love for the brothers. It is by this love, this inward transformation, that results in outward affections. It's in this that we find true confirmation of our state 
to know that we are in the truth. And notice this next line. He says, and reassure our hearts before him. Reassure our hearts before him. The NIV, though I don't preach from the NIV, and um, I, it's not my preferred translation, the Greek is set, and set our hearts at rest in his presence. To set our hearts at rest in his presence. Such a beautiful way to describe what he means here when he says reassured. It's to be persuaded, convinced, to be tranquilized, you might say. Our hearts before him. By this we, by this love that we have for one another, we can find our hearts at rest. Find them tranquilized, calmed down before God. Where there was once fear, we can find peace. Friends, think of this reality. It's the reality that we stand quorum Deo. We stand in the very presence of God. And we can do so with our hearts at rest. Do you see how incredible that is? Do you see what that means, believer? We were once truly enemies. We dreaded the coming of the Savior. Even if we didn't believe in it, even if we didn't affirm it, even if we said it's not real, the reality is, is we dreaded it. We see so many people out there, if you ever watch any street evangelists or if you've done any street evangelism, people that are truly angry at the thought of a judgment day. And we ask the question, well, why are they so angry about that? And some would say, well, it's because they just don't believe it and they don't want to hear it. The reality is, is that they know where they stand. They know what will be coming for them. They know the reality is, is that they will be punished for their sinfulness. And you and I were right there with them, waiting for God's wrath to be poured upon us. But now we stand at peace. We can stand with confidence before him, our hearts at rest. What a truly incredible gift we have in Christ in that moment that moment of salvation where our hearts are put at rest. For whenever our heart condemns us, he continues, friends, we stand in the presence of God, and it can be a truly terrifying thing. Even as a believer, right, we're talking about the reality of doubt. We see this described throughout the, we see this as faithful men throughout scriptures described being afraid of being in the presence of God. Exodus 3.6, Moses and God. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. The man that God had come to. And he says, I cannot look upon you, I'm afraid. Luke chapter 5 and verse 8 Jesus calling his disciples, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Men that we look to now and we say, How the Lord utilized them. It's a frightful thing to come before God. And so the reality is, is at times our heart condemns us. To stand before God rightly causes us fear. So we see our remaining sin. We see the things that have yet to be rooted out. Knowing that we are not perfect as we are called to be perfect. Knowing that we are not holy as we are called to be holy. And yet he says you can be at rest. How is it so that we can have reassurance of our hearts before him? Our hearts condemn us. And yet he says, you can have reassurance. It almost makes no sense. It almost seems like, how does this work? Our hearts condemn us for our past and our present sin, and we find it to be a despairing reality. But notice what he says about who God is. And here is that reassuring moment for us. God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He knows everything. There is a higher court... There is a higher judge than our hearts. While our hearts are out to condemn us, to put us to shame, we don't have to answer to our hearts per se, because God is greater than those. 
and he knows everything. He is aware, friends. This is both a beautiful and terrifying reality. He knows everything. He knows your sins. He knows your failings. Past, present, future. He knows the things that you've done right and the things you've done wrong. He knows when you've been selfish or when you've shown self-sacrificial love. He knows all of it. And in knowing this, believer, God saved you. And therefore, you can have assurance. Our hearts can be reassured that God has forgiven our sin because of Christ. As we saw previously, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, because God is greater than our hearts, we should never be concerned with our hearts or our conscience. Does that sound right? Well, maybe not. Instead, our hearts condemning us should make us ask the question, is this because of a sin issue that I need to put to death? Our hearts can rightfully tell us things. The Spirit working within us will tell us, you are on a bad path right now. You are sinning against the Holy God. And remember, we talked about what sin is, right? An affront against God, an attack against God's glory and His commands. And so we must ask the question, am I in sin right now? Do I need to confess sin? Do I need to forsake sin? And may it drive us then to do that. But there's also a reality that our hearts are very capable of condemning us for our past. For the things that are no longer. Lord knows there's been times for myself where I look upon my previous life, my before Christ life, and it's a wicked place. It's a painful place. It's a place that I don't even want to think upon, and yet every so often it will creep up and you think, one, wow, how wicked was I? Two, how glorious is Christ? But three, at times that shame is still there. and The reality is, though, that that shame and that guilt should no longer be there. It's taken away. We read this earlier from Romans chapter 8, verse 1. And therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, in these two verses we see the reality that God's desire is for us to have confidence of our salvation. Do you remember in John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, we haven't gotten there, but we've read it numerous times. He says, I, will write, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you might know that you have eternal life. In these two verses, we see the text get to the root point. Our love is an outward sign of the work of God, and we can have assurance that if we have self-sacrificial love, that can only come from God. Once again, this is not of our own works. There's nothing that we have to stand on that we can know that He is greater than our failings by His grace. This is never an excuse to those who are failing. This is not to just allow your failures to continue on, but to say, these are outward signs of the work of God. We need to rightly understand God's ability to forgive when we fail, to put at rest our own hearts as they attempt to condemn us sometimes for our past. Even in our present, as we confess sin, as we put sin to death, it's easy to be caught up in that, to dwell on the current struggle, the current battle. But the reality is we find confidence in God's grace. And so let's turn to our next point here. We have confidence in God's will. Reading verses 21 and 22, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. Beloved, this term of endearment for the believer, John's, Genuine care for the body of believers. It's comparable to what he's used before. He said, 
my little children, or little children, children, if our heart does not condemn us. A natural blessing, right? This is what he's been talking about. A natural blessing of being a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is our hearts find reassurance before God because of his grace. And what comes is doubt fades away. Fears can fade away. As believers, then, we can have confidence before God. And that's what he says here, right? We have confidence before God. To have confidence means to stand in boldness, assurance. We stand before God with confidence when we walk in humble obedience to him, trusting that he is faithful and putting our condemning hearts at rest. It's not to say, once again, that we are saved by our works by any means, but rather this is a role like cause and effect. Trusting in God, reassuring our hearts, knowing that God knows everything allows us to then have confidence as we approach him. In a sense, it's to have a clear conscience before him. We see that kind of terminology in numerous places, Acts 24 and 16, so I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Acts 23 and verse 1, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Paul writing to first, in 1 first Timothy 1 verse 19, holding faith in a good conscience, being able to have a good conscience. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him. Friends, we can approach the Father with confidence and assurance that whatever we ask, we will receive. Hebrews 4 and verse 16, Let us then with confidence, this is another verse of this, draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And right as I read that, I hope that your mind started to contort a little. Start to think to yourself, wait a minute, what does that mean? Are you saying that God answers prayers based on our merit? That which we have done? Well, what we see here is really John expanding upon what's he, what he recorded from Christ previously. John 14, verses 13 through 15. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John chapter 15, verses 5 through 7, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. For if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. John 16, verses 23 and 24, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, ask you, whatever you ask of my Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Friends, in these passages, we see John connecting answered prayers to things like obedience, abiding in God, faith, and God's glory being displayed. The reality is, is that many have misused this. Many have misused this passage. Some have misused it in the sense of abusing the passage. And some have misused it to cast doubt in the lives of believers. Those that abuse it, it's the health and wealth, right? Prosperity gospel preaching. Be obedient, be legalistically obedient, and get what you want. Have enough faith and you will get what you desire. Seek to do everything that I tell you and God will answer. This is the, give us a thousand dollars and God will give you the million you've been asking for. Abusing the reality of what this means. There's others that have cast doubt because of this. We see a world where there's thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people 
that are faithful believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know the exact number, but we know that there are people throughout the world. And some of those that are living in dire places, utter poverty, under true persecution. I just heard somebody recently talking about persecution in the Middle East and how Christians are truly under persecution day in and day out. Do you think they don't pray for that to cease? Do you not think that they pray for those persecuting to come to know the risen Savior, Jesus Christ? But their prayers don't get answered or seem to not get answered. And so what gives? He says here, Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what he pleases. So is it because of our merits then or what? Well, both of these are misunderstandings and we get to the real heart of the issue then. There is a relation here. We acknowledge, as we saw in the other text from John just a moment ago, that God answers prayers according to that which glorifies him and which, which addresses that second question, but also to talk about prosperity gospel. How do we refute that? The reality is, as we look at the entirety of the context here and we see in this letter alone, that obedience simply out of some desire to gain merit or good status is not what God desires. Nor can we have a love for this world and for him. MacArthur, uh, in his commentary on this, quotes Kistemaker, and he says this, Is John stating two prerequisites to answered prayer? Really not. Obeying God's commands must never be done under compulsion or for the purpose of selfishly receiving earthly rewards. The Christian fulfills God's command with a cheerful heart, a cheerful heart that expresses gratitude. John is saying that when we obey his commands, we are doing that which pleases God. By adding, to, uh, adding the clause, and do what pleases him, John rules out any notion of merit. Pleasing God flows forth from love and loyalty. Implicitly, John reminds his readers of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Jesus always sought to please the Father by doing his will. We see this in John chapter 8 and verse 29. The basis for answered prayer is not blind obedience, but a desire to please God with dedicated love. And God fulfills our request because of the bond of love and fellowship between the Father and His child. And God fulfills our requests because of the, love, the bond of love and fellowship between the Father and the child. Friends, the reality is here is that no, there's no merit that gains us answered prayer. There is no merit or work that we do, but simple obedience shows our love for the Father. And in that love, that loving relationship, the Father is pleased to give us that which we ask and is in accordance with His will and His glory. And so John has started to build an argument here that is driving our overall view that we can have assurance and confidence before Him, before the Heavenly Father. We can have confidence because we see the outward work of God's grace and our love for one another. Even when our hearts condemn us, we know that God is greater than our hearts because He knows everything. And this assurance, this confidence that we have drives us into deeper trust as we obey His commands and know then that He will answer our prayers. John continues this by reminding us of a basis for our assurance, the reason that we have confidence in God. Notice this next point. We have confidence in God's salvation. In reading verse 23, he says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of, the Son, of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. This is God's command, his decree, that we believe in the name of the, his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Belief in His Son, Jesus Christ, gives us the utmost confidence of our salvation. That is the true basis for it. Remember that none of the works or ethical behaviors that have been previously mentioned will do anything outside of Christ. That's why I started this very 
sermon with reading what is the biblical view of salvation we are saved by grace through faith they're in a sense worthless outside of him any of the works that we do remember the gospel of john john 3 15 and 16 that whoever believes in him may have eternal life for god so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life Outside of Christ and outside of saving faith, there is no assurance. There's nothing that you can be assured of except for your coming destruction, your coming judgment, your coming punishment. We find our true assurance in Him alone and love for one another. It's the same command that John has been laying out throughout the text. We've seen it throughout the letter. He uses that same Greek word, the agapao, agape, true sacrificial love and he's putting it in the present tense right pointing to this ongoing continual attitude and action towards one another john chapter 13 verses 34 and 35 he says a new commandment i give to you that you love one another just as i have loved you you are also to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another just as he has commanded us. John just reemphasizes the reality that this is a command. Friends, we treat the gospel as some kind of free offering at times. While we affirm, obviously, reformed doctrines of grace, the election of the saints, many just treat it kind of like a, well, this is just what, you know, God says, if you want to. No, he commands us. He says, repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, my son that I sent to save you. Put your trust in him and him alone. Have faith in him and him alone. It's a command. It's an instruction. It's not an offer. It's not a question mark at the end. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in my son that I have sent. I loved you so much that I sent him to die on a cross in your place for your sins. Believe in him and love one another. Friends, in this, John just reinstates what has been saying through this letter as a whole. Drives home this critical reality, this clear command to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And he drives home the fact that we love one another. Remember, those are kind of inseparable realities. They're two sides of the same coin. They don't come separately. You love Christ and you love one another. They come together because that's the reality. You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I love the Lord and hate my brother. We saw that earlier. And so John has laid out the reality that true Christians obey God's commands. And here are really two of the most important that we follow christ that we love christ that we believe in christ and that we love one another and so john has continued to build upon this argument for having assurance to have confidence before god in this verse he places the cornerstone of that he puts before you jesus christ upon which all the other things are built love for one another obedience to the commands prayer and now let us turn to our final point we have confidence in god's spirit in verse 24 whoever keeps his commandments abides in god and god in him and by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us an outward sign of the inward work of god in, in salvation is our obedience to god's commands and the ongoing growth and sanctification. Notice John uses that word abide again here. It's a word that he's used throughout the text to signify being truly saved. To be saved is to abide in God and to God abide in you. We've seen that John puts that throughout his text and he even does it in his gospel. So we just read Last, in the last few weeks, we've seen that reality. I'm going to turn back real quick to John chapter 15. 
John chapter 15. Talking about being the vine and talking about abiding again. Just to kind of draw that in for us a little bit deeper. The reality that abiding equals salvation. Reading from verse 1 of chapter 15 in John's Gospel. Reading through verse 10. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He prunes it, sanctifying work. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. <coughs> Friends, to abide is to be truly saved, to be connected to the vine, Jesus himself. Whoever keeps my commandments abides in God, and God in him. Friends, our obedience to God's commands truly exemplify our saved state. It shows where we stand before God. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. How do we know that we abide in Christ and he in us? Well, the Spirit really is the affirmer of that. We can look at all these outward signs, and I think those are good things, right? We can look at our love for one another. That's a clear sign. We can look at our hearts and our rest before God. If it's a good conscience rest, and that's a good thing. We obviously can trust in the belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, because that is the basis, the foundation, that is the cornerstone upon which all of this is built. We can look at their commandment keeping. But really, at the end of the day, he says, how do we know? By the Spirit whom has been given to you. Right? The Spirit, remember from John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. The unbeliever cannot receive only the believer because it neither sees him nor knows him you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Spirit works in our lives, puts on display, puts on display that we abide in Christ and he in us. It is by the Spirit moving within our lives to give us true life where we were once dead. It's the Spirit that causes us to repent, to draw us into faith in Christ, to place us within the body of Christ, to give us the ability to step into His ministry. It is by the Spirit that we are given understanding of God's Word. It is by the Spirit that we have help in our prayers before the Holy God. It is He, the Spirit, that guides us as believers and provides us true assurance that we are indeed saved. We read this earlier, Romans chapter 8 and verse 16. The Spirit Himself, the Spirit Himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Friends, the Spirit is the one to truly give the ultimate assurance. To confirm all that we have seen. To say, yes, you are truly saved. Friends, let us ask the Spirit for that assurance when we have that doubt. All day I could look upon your life and I could provide you all kinds of assurance. I could say, well, look at this that you've done, or look at this change in your life. 
Look at this sin that you've put to death. Or look at this thing over here. Look at your love for the Word. Look at your love for one another. All those things are good things that are granted by God and give us assurance. But at the end of the day, I can't give you the assurance the Spirit does. That is truly the work of the Spirit to give you true assurance of your salvation. To give you true assurance of where you stand before the holy and living God. And so, friends, as we close today, I just want to summarize what we've seen here. Friends, it's in, it, it is possible to have true assurance of your salvation, to have confidence before God. So frequently we've assumed it's either not possible to have this because we don't, or we think we're fighting in some kind of holy battle because we're always fighting for our salvation. We think we're holier than thou because we're always doubting. It's a true statement. We know we've done it, right? We've stood in our despair and our doubts and we think to ourselves man what a holy man I must be to constantly be so worried to be so concerned to be so unsure it must be just the spirit that's causing me to be constantly worried and that's not the case it is possible to have assurance of salvation However, we see from God's word that he desires, desires truly, truly to have that assurance. And he gives us practical steps to do that. It's not some ethereal feeling, assurance. It's not some warm feeling in your chest where you have ease or wherein you find yourself not having to question or to not test yourself. No, we know that the word calls us to test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. But the Lord does desire that our lives are not filled with doubt, not filled with despair, not filled with ongoing questions of where we'll end up. Friends, we should have true assurance where we will come one day to our deaths. We'll be on our deathbed, whether in illness, old age, maybe in some kind of accident, and even in those moments, we should be able to have assurance of knowing where we will be. Knowing where we will go. Knowing that we will be united with our God. Our lives should not be filled with doubt and despair. And so we've seen today that we have confidence before God if we have right affections towards one another, as this is reassurance to us that we are in the truth. We have confidence before God that when our hearts condemn us, he is greater than our hearts and knows everything. What a great assurance that is. He knows everything. It's like going up to someone that you need to tell the truth about something and they say, friend, I already know. I already know. We have confidence before God that he will answer our prayers. And that we can and must obey God and please Him. And our obedience and our pleasing Him is a sign of that assurance we can have. We have confidence before God in the saving work of His Son and our love for one another. The reality is, is that the Son's work upon the cross saves. It's efficacious. It does what it is made to do. He will save those whom He has called. We have nothing to fear there. And we have confidence before God that when we abide in Him and He in us, all of that is a sign of our salvation. And it's all confirmed by the Spirit that has been given to us because the Spirit comes to those who are believers. It's not for this world, it's for the believer. And so, friends, when doubt arises, because I know it will, let us look to God's Word to rightly help us navigate that doubt. To help us rightly understand that and to put the doubts and the fears away. If it's dwelling from ongoing habitual sin, then we look back to what we've read previously and we take pause and we ask the question, if I'm not living and practicing righteousness, where do I stand? However, if we 
find ourselves doubting because of a condemning heart, a heart that's looking upon the guilt from our previous sin. Let us then look to this passage, look to the inward and outward working of the Spirit in our lives and rejoice in the God who graciously saves. May we then approach Him boldly with confidence to offer our prayers before Him, knowing, knowing full well that God is capable of doing, capable of doing all that is in our good and for His glory. And it's with great joy then that we pray this morning as we close, knowing that He is capable of doing that. Father God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank you for the reality of your word and the truth of your word that gives us assurance. Lord, you know our proneness to doubt. You know our proneness to fears and worries. Lord, we live in a world that draws on us to doubt constantly our salvation. Doubt your existence even. And yet you say, look to your word. And so we do this morning. And we ask that as we look to your word, Lord, that you might help us to find our confidence in you. Lord, may you give us strength for the battle. The battle for our hearts. The battle for our minds. The battle for confidence. May your spirit just work within us to give us the assurance that only the spirit can give. Lord, may we encourage one another in moments of doubt and love to point back to you, to the work of our Savior and to the Spirit. Lord, we thank you again for your word this morning. We thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word, that you've given us truth in your word, that we have to look only to your word and not look outwardly to find the truth the basis, as we read earlier, for all moral realities, for all salvation realities, for all truths. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.